Hello, welcome to the Capital Employed Podcast. Joining me in conversation for this episode was Steve Clappen from Behind the Balance Sheet. Regular listeners to this podcast will know that we normally ask the guests for a brief overview of their investment style, and then we take a deeper look into some of the stocks in their portfolio. However, for this episode, because we have Steve on the show, who has decades of investing experience, I thought we would talk about Steve's own process for finding great stocks to invest in and how he manages his own portfolio. Before we jump into this episode, make sure to add your email to the Capital Employed email list. We will be publishing some exclusive interviews that will only be available to those on the list. To receive these bonus episodes, please visit capitalemployed.fm forward slash exclusive and add your email to the list. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Steve. Hi Steve, thanks for coming on to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure most of our listeners are probably quite familiar with you, but just in case there are any who are not, can you give, um, in a nutshell, a brief overview of your background and, and also what is behind the balance sheet? Yeah, of course. So I, um, from my sins, I started in my career as an equity analyst on the south side and I worked for various investment banks. I moved to the buy side and I was a partner head of research at two multi-billion dollar hedge funds. And I set up Behind the Balance Sheet as a training business in 2018, in the middle of 2018. We do um, three things, really. For institutional investors, we run a forensic accounting course, which has been very popular. And for a small group of those clients, we also do bespoke research. So clients will come to us and say, we've got a problem with XYZ sector, XYZ stock, and then we'll do a deep dive research, often including some forensic accounting. The third thing that we do is we've got an online training school. So if you're a private investor or we've got a lot of professional investors, we've got a, an online school where you can come on and we have offer a range of courses. But our most popular course is the Analyst Academy, which is a 12-month program, which takes you from being a novice to being a confident and competent investor. Online courses are pretty new in the education world and in the investing world, they're, they're particularly new. There are you know, quite a few charlatans around where people who aren't qualified, don't really know what they're doing, are purporting to be experts and selling you courses. And I think we take a lot of pride in the fact that the courses that we offer are very well founded on all the work that I have done over 25 plus years as an analyst. And you know, they, they use my experience and my practical techniques a lot of our audience, many are in their sort of twenties and thirties and forties and are working as analysts. And we've got many um keen private investors who are looking to up their game, learn more about accounting and to be better investors. So I thought for this show we could just uh, tap into your wealth of experience and r- run through your own process from start to finish. So if we start from the beginning, how do you find your stocks? Would you use a screener or is it more a serendipitous a- approach? We um tend to believe that if you, if you find stocks using a single method, that ends up with a very similar portfolio. I'm a great believer that um, you don't need a huge number of stocks in your portfolio to create diversification, but you need to find them from different places. 
So the diversification, you know, I look at isn't just, you know, having a range of geographical exposures or a range of sexual exposures, but also a range of style exposures. I therefore think it's a good idea to try and find your stock ideas in different places. I occasionally will use screens and find something that's thrown up out of that. My history as a professional investor was that I did special situations. The nature of special situations is that they don't tend to show themselves in a quantitative light. So you can do a screen and you'll miss lots of good opportunities. In my book, I list, I think, 15 different areas that I look at. Some of the most effective, I think, are from your personal experience. So, you know, you've bought a product, had a really good experience. Then, you know, I tend to go and look at the stock. Lateral ideas. So, you know, something that's worked in one geography will often transport itself to another geography. So an example of that would be Aldi and Lidl, the discount supermarkets setting up in the UK. Well, when they set up in Australia, we'd already seen that playbook, how it played out with a very significant de-rating of Tesco and Marks and & Spencers and, and Sainsbury's. You know, when you, when you think about what are the implications in Australia, well, you know what's going to happen. That's my kind of style, is to try and use lateral ideas where it's not I'm doing something, I'm trying to find something original, quite the reverse. I'm trying to find a playbook that's worked somewhere else and say, well, what's going to happen here? And once a kind of a, a stock comes into your view, in terms of time, you obviously don't want to waste too much time. How, how much time would you then spend on it? Well, you say you don't want to waste too much time. And when, when I was um, at the hedge funds, we, you know, we were running quite a lot of money and we needed to put quite a lot of capital behind each position. I would often do you know, six weeks work on a single idea. But because it took so long to, to do a full drains up detailed research on a stock, I also developed a, a sort of shortcut technique, which was, you know, anything from half an hour to two hours to first take a look at a stock. Because obviously you don't want to do a whole bunch of work and then find out it's not a good idea. And so that sort of, I guess it would be two hours for the average private investor, maybe a little longer because you don't have the tools, you know, the Bloomberg screens and the broker's research. But that shortcut research starts off with looking at the liquidity of the stock. Then I kind of look at, the, you know, the basic financial characteristics and I have a look at, you know, what's the revenue growth record been? What's the management capital allocation been? How are the management incentivized? And those sorts of things. As much as anything, it's trying to find things that you you want to exclude. What you're trying to do is put up a set of hurdles that the stock has to get over to be to warrant spending more time on. If that makes sense, John. And are there certain industries you would stay away from because you'd be a bit maybe suspicious about how they do their accounting? Well, so it's funny you should ask that because frauds come in all shapes and sizes, and they come in almost every sector. I've done an extensive study of of frauds and. They, they turn up everywhere. You know, the, the sectors that I exclude are sectors where I just don't have the knowledge or understanding or expertise. You know, I'm a great believer in the Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett theme of circle of competence. 
I won't do anything in the pharmaceutical sector because it's too difficult. I just don't understand it. Biotech, similarly. I won't do anything in banks. I find that banks, balance sheets are a matter of some puzzlement to me. and I just find them too difficult. And similarly, insurance companies. I think in order to be successful investing in those areas, you need to have a sectoral expertise, which I just don't have. So I won't do anything in those areas. Outside those, I'm I'm pretty flexible. I don't mind where I look. I just look for opportunities. Is evaluation, is that kind of a, a big part of your process? There's many people that kind of put that further further down the scales. It's not so important, especially these days with low interest rates. Is, is valuation very important to you? I mean, I think it is important, whether you've got low interest rates or high interest rates. I mean, valuation is always going to be important, but obviously the sensitivities are slightly different in when you've got very low rates. It's never been uh, it's never been a central part of my process. You know, I won't buy something that is obviously expensive, but I don't. I, w- I would never buy a stock because I thought its its PE was too low. You know, a lot of people will look at a stock and say, "Oh, it's on fifteen times," and I think a stock like this should be on twenty. That I think is a very difficult argument because you can be wrong for a long, long time. Even if you're right, what's going to make other people change their mind about it? So I'm more looking for something that is less obvious that the market can't see. Because, you know, the first thing you do when you look at a stock is you look at what, what the valuation is. You know, that every, every system, every screen that you look at has got valuation right at the center of it. If you're going to try and make money and do something different from other people, then putting valuation lower down your list, I think, is a sensible strategy. And that's certainly, it's certainly, valuation certainly never been something that I've been particularly worried about. And once you've gone through your process and you, everything ticks the box and you pull the trigger and you buy, what is the kind of the process then? What would make you sell? So I'll get started to drift down and down and maybe you found yourself 25% down, 30% down. Would you sort of automatically cut and get out or would you just keep faith and hold for the longer term? Well, I mean, it really depends. I mean, in my professional career, if you're deploying large amounts of capital, you've generally got to be early. And if you're early, you are often too early. So the stock continues to fall. You know, you you tend to buy in as a stock is falling because that, that means you can get the, the volume. And often it doesn't stop volume just doesn't stop falling just because you stop buying, quite the reverse. When a stock falls more than a certain amount, I would always go back and revisit it and ask myself, am I sure that I'm right? Often, if stock has fallen a long way, you you have to spend quite a lot of time examining, has your thesis changed? Is what you thought was going to happen with this stock is it actually going to happen? And sometimes the answer is, well, actually, you got it wrong. And sometimes the answer is, well, actually, nothing has changed at all except the share price. And then the onus is on you to really think about averaging down, which is always a, it's always a difficult thing to do, but it can be the right thing to do. And so I'm quite pragmatic. I think, you know, when you've got a stock that's fallen, I mean, some people just say, okay, 
I'm going to, I'm just going to sell it and move on to the next thing. Because I often do quite a lot of work, I've got quite a lot of time and emotional energy invested in it. So what I try and do is make a dispassionate assessment. Obviously, there's no point in holding it just because you've spent a lot of time and money buying it. That's the worst possible decision. But usually I'll know the stock well enough that I can ask, has it fallen because there's new news? Does this change my assessment? And if I've done my work correctly, what the assessment should change, but it should change in that the risk reward has improved and you therefore should own more. But it's not, it's never an easy thing. I mean, I'm not pretending that, that it is. What about on the upside? If you uh, bought a stock, you got it right, it was successful, and maybe it went up 300% over the next sort of five years. And it was, the valuation was very expensive. How would you manage that trade? Would you maybe take uh, some chips off the table or would you keep on holding if the fundamentals were still good? Well, I, I tend to have quite concentrated portfolios. So, you know, so if something's trebled, I'll probably have taken some money off the table even before it's trebled, simply because it'll become, you know, I've reached my limits instead of my concentration limits. You know, if I haven't done that, I try and just look at it and say, okay, I've owned it for three years. How likely is it that it's going to carry on going up? I think often investors overstay their welcome. Obviously, people like Warren Buffett and Terry Smith have been incredibly successful by holding stocks for a very, very long time. If you have the, if you have the right stock, you should carry on holding it. If you're doing special situations, they tend to have a finite life. You know, it's more work than owning something for 20 years because you've got to keep rotating. And someone who owns a stock for 20 years will have done far less work than I will have because I'll have gone in, to, in and out of five or 10 positions in that period. But the nature of special situations is that you're doing something because you think that the market has missed something. And then once the market's cottoned onto it and the shares have gone up, there usually isn't the same opportunity for that exceptional gain. You know, normally the situation would be to get get rid of that one and look for the next opportunity. And are you still finding uh, good opportunities in the current uh, market? Right this minute, it's slightly more difficult. The last 12 months has been full of opportunity um, on both sides, actually. You know, obviously, I'm no longer working at hedge funds, so I'm no longer doing professional shorting. But I've seen lots of good short opportunities and lots of good long opportunities, lots of things that were hit very badly by COVID that looked to me to be pretty good solid companies where, yeah, you know, the balance sheets took a bit of pain because everybody was closed until they open up again. There's some, some cash outflow, but not hugely so, not that, you know, debts were piling up on the balance sheet. So I've been building up positions in few few stocks where I think COVID has disrupted their journey, but that they'll be back in the same places they were in 2019, in 2023, 
And in spite of that, their valuations look much cheaper than they were. That's the sort of opportunities that I've been looking at. The trouble is, of course, we don't really know to what extent the the world will have changed as a result of COVID. So inevitably, we're going to be ordering more food for home delivery than we were. But equally, when you look at the restaurant industry, there has been a huge number of casualties in that industry. And the supply side has been very significantly disrupted. So what I think we're going to see in an industry like that, as an example, is that the underlying demand for the product actually won't diminish. It might, it might be manifest itself in slightly different ways so that you won't just eat out, you also order in. But I think people will, will eat restaurant food as much as, if not more than, they did in the past. Yet the supply will be adversely impacted. So I think, you know, I've been looking at restaurant operators as an example of an industry which has been disrupted by COVID and where the the players that are left standing at the end will have a bigger opportunity than they had in 2019. I really hope they do bounce back well. You wrote a book that was released towards the end of last year called The Smart uh, Money Method, which I've, I've read and I think it's really good. Are there any books you've read recently or maybe even any documentaries you've seen that have really stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do read quite a lot. And, you know, I, I, I don't read exclusively investment books. I read a lot of nonfiction. One of the best books I've read in the last 18 months is Range by David Epstein, which although it's not an investment book as such, I think it's got a huge number of lessons for investors. And it's a book that I would really thoroughly recommend. The other one is the book by Sir Paul Marshall, who is one of the co-founders with Ian Wace of the hedge fund Marshall Wace. His book, Ten and a Half Lessons from Experience, I think is an astonishingly good book about investing. I like investing books by practitioners, and his book is in my definitely in my top 10. It's a really, really short book, so you can read it in an hour and a half, And but I think it's brilliant. And for people who are less um, focused on equity investing, but interested in investing more generally, I really enjoyed Morgan Housel's book, um, which came out around the same time as mine, actually. I've now forgotten the name of it. Is it The Psychology of Money? Is, the is Psychology of Money. I was thinking yeah. the psychology of something. I was just, just trying to remember the name. And I thought it was it was brilliant. I mean, he's an incredibly good writer. I wish I could write as well as him. Fabulous. Those would be three of my favorite, the favorites um, I've I've had recently. Thanks for sharing that, and um, yeah, thanks for coming onto the show and, and sharing your sort of in briefly your investment um, process. Where can listeners go to find out more about you and your courses as well? Of course, thanks. Well. My website is behindthebalancesheet.com, and if you go on there, you can see not just the courses which are available for sale, but I have a club site where there's a library with 1,500 investing articles. You just need to sign up to to get access. There's also a blog. I I'm not I don't I'm not one of these people that writes a blog every week. I find that it takes me a little while to do it, but I try and write one a month. They're usually a couple thousand words, and then I do shorter blogs in in the club site 
And you can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at Steve Clapham. The most recent thing we've done is we launched a YouTube channel. So if you search behind the balance sheet on YouTube, we've got a load of videos there where we do some general investing tips, valuation 101s. The one that's been most popular, slightly surprisingly to me, is accounting red flags. That's a lot of people have really enjoyed those. So the things to look for when you're looking at a company that tell you that something's not quite right. I've been watching the videos on your channel. Yeah, I'd, I'd fully recommend listeners to go and um, check that out. Thank you. Thanks so much, Steve, for coming on. Maybe one day in the future we can have you um, back on. Well, I'd love to do that, John. Thanks so much for having me.